0: Good morning, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified student State bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit ConflictHealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, we're going to be talking about another kind of conflict. Another kind of healing in it in it there was some conflict within it, and it's just beautiful. We've been just reading this book called Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers, a kidney doctor's search for the perfect match. And it's by Vanessa Grubbs, MD. Let me tell you about Dr. Grubbs. She is an associate professor of medicine and a nephrologist at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, where she maintains a practice and clinical research program. She received her undergraduate and medical degrees from Duke University, and she teaches uh, writing for patient advocacy to medical students and practicing physicians. She lives with her husband and teenage son in Oakland, California, just in Northern California. And this is her first book, Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers. You can find out more about her at the nephrologist.com Vanessa thank you so much from taking some time from your very busy day to join us
1: Oh my pleasure thank you so much for inviting me
0: Well you know my son graduated from Duke University so I know that beautiful place in North Carolina what a what a wonderful place to go to school and you know I I, I was fascinated by your book you know I went through my mother having to uh, go through dialysis. Mm -hmm. And um, and trying to go there. And it was I remember being in that cold room and and bringing my kids with me, which was hard on them. But, you know, I was a single mom and bringing my kids to see their grandma when she'd go to, uh, you know, dialysis three times a week. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I know how hard that is, and I just admire you for all the help and good things, and I, I know they're doing better things since my mother died in 1989, so uh, I'm sure you've gotten some a lot of things improved since those days. So, what made you want to go into medicine in the first place?
1: Well, you know, I, I really did not um, plan to until um, one day I was a, a high school junior, and uh, my brother came home for a visit. I'm the baby of the family, the surprise uh, baby of six, and he's the mm. oldest. And so I was 16, and he was, uh, I guess, 32 at the time. And he asked me what I was planning to do after high school. And, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, math and science, and uh, I wanted to do something in health care, but it hadn't occurred to me to become a doctor because, you know, I didn't really see anybody um, that looked like me, so the thought had not crossed my mind that that's something that was within reach for me, mm. um, and I said I was going to be a medical technologist because it, it sounded good, and but I didn't know exactly what that entailed, and he said to me, well, you know, you should go all the way and be a doctor because you can. Mm. The, the first time that I considered, oh, okay, yeah, I'll be <laughs>
0: Yes. Oh, that's wonderful! Big brother, encouraging. That's that's mm-hmm. some, that is that is great. Yeah. Well, why did you choose nephrology?
1: That was really um, as a result of my relationship with my husband. Uh, so when I uh, met him, he had been on dialysis for several years and um, that really gave me a much closer look at what it is that people on dialysis are going through. Um, I was a primary care doctor already at the time, but I'm um, sorry, I, you know, I was getting this call waiting.
0: Um,
1: and uh, and let's see, oh, yeah, so I got a much closer look at what life was like for him and, um, as well as the kidney transplant system, and I really um, wanted to... Um, um, my goal, my way to um, help him was to give him one of my kidneys, but to help others, I wanted to um, do research in um, access to kidney transplant because, you know, it just, that was the first time um, which I was really aware of the, um, how the system is stacked so that not everybody has equal, um, an equal chance of getting a kidney transplant. So um, I wanted to do research in the area to try to figure out why and come up with solutions. And I went to talk with a nephrologist who um, um, I told a little bit of my um, story to. And, and um, really, I was just looking for a research project. But he said to me, and it is kind of like you know the conversation with my brother. He said, you know, you should, have <laughs> uh, you know, just a one tough clinical year, and it'll really change your perspective and how people perceive your work. And I said, okay, yeah, all right, I'll be a nephrologist. <laughs> that's how I came into the field, and I and, thought, uh, you know, I was not planning to specialize at all before that moment, so. Yeah. So tell about
0: this love story. You know, this, this show is called Fighting for Love, you know, Turn Conflict into Intimacy. I bet you um, found some interesting inner conflicts with this whole thing of becoming a nephrologist. T- tell us about that love affair.
1: Well, um, when I met my husband, his name is Robert Phillips, he was um, on the board of, um, of trustees for the medical center where I worked in Oakland. And I had um, finished my training and just joined the faculty. And I was doing some, uh, trying to establish a program to improve diversity um, around the um, medical center. And so I wanted to meet the various board members. So I introduced myself to him. And in truth, it, it was definitely no love at first sight. And <laughs> I, I felt a bit rude to me. And uh, it was dismissive because he's a <laughs> you know coming up and asking him for things Um, (laughs) I just kind of awkwardly walked away from him and um, but a year later he called me because a mutual friend um, said he should give me a call in, in his effort to try to Find uh, uh, physicians who might be able to um, advocate for him and getting through the kidney transplant system. And so I talked about you know different folks and how helpful they might or might not be. And he invited me to a dinner at our friend's home. Said it would be about seven or eight people. and I said sure, of course. But when I got there, it turned out it was just the three of us. Mm. And um, and you know I, you know I guess some a little bit of sparks were. Uh, flying between us and um, I kidded him about how he was rude to me <laughs> and, and he was all apologetic and, and then at one point um, as soon as we finished um, eating our friend just got up and said oh I'm going to go to the store and get some ice cream for dessert and she basically twirled out of her house and left us sitting there alone <laughs> so it, it very much felt like a setup. <laughs> I, I even um, I called her um, at the end of the evening um, as I was driving home, and I said, "Did you set that up?" <laughs> I said, well, I did. If it worked out. If it works out. Sorry. If it doesn't, I didn't. <laughs> right. Exactly. responsibility for it unless it worked out, and um, clearly it did because um, we um, we went on and um, we had surgery, and then four months after that, we got married and. That's been 12 years ago.
0: So how yes, how did the um, how did it come about that you had decided um, that you were going to give him one of your kidneys? You you hadn't known him that long, had you?
1: Yeah, and a lot of people are um, either kind of amazed or you know question my sanity because uh, the surgery did happen only about um, eight, nine months after we started dating.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, the way I explain it is we were in our early 30s already. You know, we had been around the block a time or two. You know, we knew what we wanted and didn't want. So neither of us were at a point in life where we we were about wasting time. So, you know, it's like we got along well, very much attracted to one another, developed feelings and love. And, um, and really it was just me seeing everything from a more up close perspective, uh, uh, in terms of what he was going through and the, um, the barriers in the kidney transplant system that, um, I just decided, um, you know, it was actually when we were at his, um, clinic appointment for a transplant evaluation, he was told he was moving to the top of the list and, uh, I sat there feeling like the system, might not take care of him in time, you know, Mm. on dialysis, living with kidney failure, you know, I mean, tomorrow's not guaranteed to any of us, but a really serious illness, you know, it's some added pressure to that. So while we were sitting there, I I just said, you know, um, we should see if I can give you a kidney.
0: Yeah, if you were a match. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And his um, immediate response was, no, I don't want to do that because as a lot of um um the recipients are they they don't want to put anyone in harm's way right right so i really just didn't say anything more to him about it but i was um i was very sure that this was a thing that I wanted to do, that I needed to do, and so I just went through the process of getting myself evaluated to make sure that I was healthy enough to donate. And I didn't say another word to him until um, they told us that we were compatible and we had a surgery date. Wow! And at- was he in shock? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I think he felt like, "Oh, well, okay. I guess she's. I guess she's serious about. <laughs> okay, let's do it." Yeah. 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 That.
0: What, talk about uh, turning conflict into intimacy. When you first met him, you thought he was kind of an arrogant creep, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, and then he need you needed something from him, and then he needed something from you, and that kind of changed everything. So that's cute. That's cute. So thank God he has his kidney and it's working, your kidney, and it's working. And yeah, how did that experience really uh, change the way that you handle your own patients when you, you know, that are going through this kind of a thing?
1: You know, I definitely feel like it gave me um, a deeper um, sense of understanding and empathy for what um, people are going through. I think oftentimes, unfortunately, doctors can um, become quite fascinated with diseases and, you know, numbers and all of these things. But right,
0: treat you like you're just a, 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 a disease or something, right? Or a number, yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. Rather than really thinking about, you know, this is a person living with an illness. Right. So ha- after having gone through this this whole process with, my husband and being on the other side myself as a patient, yes, I certainly had a much deeper um, um, sense of um,
0: empathy, I would think. yeah,
1: Yes, empathy and a much broader, pers- a deeper perspective of what really happens and um and and so i think it really helps me um not only have a, a better understanding of my patient but also um it, it be able to establish that trust and rapport with them um maybe much um better than i would otherwise be able to do Because, you know i don't um I don't hold back about my experience.
0: Right. No, I'm sure that really helps you to connect with your patients so much more.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That my my husband was on dialysis, that, you know, my experience of being his donor. And I offer to talk with um, anyone that might, you know, consider donating their kidney so that, you know, it helps with some of the fear and makes it feel like, oh, well, if she did it, then... Yeah,
0: I hear her. She's out practicing medicine, yeah, <laughs> and she did it, yeah.
1: Exactly. So, I and I don't think there's a, a downside to it. You know, I, I think oftentimes the um, relationship between patients and providers can be so one-sided and that... Cold,
0: yeah, you know, yeah.
1: You know, doctors know everything about a person down to, you know, whatever their, you know, platelet count or, you know...
0: Right, right.
1: ...details. And, um, you know, patients don't know that much about their um, um, doctors. Yeah,
0: that you're human beings, and right. Exactly,
1: exactly. So I think the, the more we can um, see each other for who we really are, the better that it goes for everybody.
0: And what a transformation because he, he's not on dialysis anymore. He doesn't have to go whatever three times a week or whatever and have his whole blood uh, well, let's tell, I, I mean, I know what dialysis is, but maybe my, my audience doesn't, so let's kind of explain what they, what they go through. It's really tough.
1: Yeah. Um, the, uh, kidney disease in general is really tough, um, and I, I think that the hardest part about it is, is really the best thing, too, in that people feel really well um, having um, a chronic kidney disease until there's very, very little function left. And I say it's the best and the worst thing because people feel well. Um, they, if they're not in the care of a physician, uh, then it, things are detected very late and mm. it, that we really can't do that much about it. So um, uh, one message I want to make sure I get out to your listeners is that it's important to um, get tested. Don't wait until you have some, uh, you know, you're feeling bad because then, you know, it's way too late. And um, so I would recommend for people who, you know, think they're healthy, um, and and especially people who have um, um, diabetes or high blood pressure that run in their family, because those two things um, account for two-thirds of the um, kidney disease that we see in this country. So Mm -hmm. if any of that runs in your family, uh, um, then you should get yourself tested at least once a year, and that's just a simple blood test um, and a urine test, and that. Those two things alone will pick up um, kidney disease very, very early, where we have a much better chance of, um, you know, trying to protect the kidney function and slow down the the deterioration. Right. Um, so you were
0: going to talk about, like, what is the process of what they have to go through in dialysis? Exactly.
1: Exactly. So um, when um, people do have um, complete kidney failure, then we have to talk about a replacement because Um, We cannot survive without any kidney function, and by replacement, that would be either dialysis or transplant, and um, we do have two forms of dialysis, and um, what um, most people are familiar with and what most people do in this country is hemodialysis, where people go to a clinic three times a week, and they sit there three or four hours each time. And they are um, connected either through a catheter or through what we call an access in their, um, um, their arm to the dialysis machine, which has a big filter in it, which mimics what the kidneys would do 24-7. So, um, and a lot of people feel okay, but most people do feel tired um, at least for a couple hours after each treatment. Um, I find that um, older patients can feel tired until it's time to go back to dialysis again. Mm. Sometimes people get cramping or feel lightheaded, and um, and that's because of, you know, just um, if we're uh, taking off too much fluid or taking fluid off really fast during the procedure, and, um, and that brings up the issues that happen between um, yeah. dialysis treatments and that people have to be really careful. They, they, the diet is a big thing in that they can't have things that are too high in potassium. They can't drink too much fluid because uh, none of that um, can, uh, their kidneys can't pee any of that out. Right. So, and, and so if none of it is removed until they go back to um, dialysis for another treatment And so if those things build up too high in between treatments, and people can be in um, really severe trouble. Um, On one end, they can get short of breath and a lot more swollen, but on the other end, you know, people can pass away, particularly from really high potassium.
0: Right, right. And, you know, for my mom, I just remember she would just, you know, suck on little pieces of ice. You know, she'd be thirsty. She couldn't drink. And I remember her saying to us, Hey, listen, when it's my time to go, give me a great big glass of lemonade, you know, and that's I'm going to drink it. You know, and, and it was well, the sad thing was it, it actually caused her to have a stroke and um and then she couldn't drink. And then when we, you know, she had to have a feeding tube and all this stuff. So I remember it when we had a celebration of her life, I had a huge thing of lemonade and everybody took a huge glass and we drank the thing and said mom this is for you you know <laughs> because she that was the one thing she missed so much is just being able to have a nice tall glass of lemonade
1: <laughs> no I, I completely yeah i understand that My my husband felt the exact same way when he was going through dialysis, and, and really one of the one of the most uh, incredible, beautiful things for me after we had surgery is just watching him
0: drink with with savor <laughs> savor the drink.
1: <laughs> yes, because then soon the the kidney that I had given him would pee all the extra out.
0: Ah, beautiful! Oh, that's so it's beautiful. Just- I got to ask you a question. What about um this the research on creating? You know, um, kidneys that are like 3D kidneys that simulate the, a real kidney. is How close are we to that we wouldn't, wouldn't have to actually donate a kidney? You could just make one.
1: Right. Yeah, they, I, they are working on it. They have been for many years. And a lot of the work um, is being done um uh, where I am at University of California at San Francisco, as well as Vanderbilt in Tennessee, and um, from what I understand, um, we're, they're not um, at the level of being able to like try it out in a person yet. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it would it would be an implantable artificial kidney, so it would require a surgery. And the cells, um, the last I heard the researchers talk about it, the cells that they were trying to grow to um, mimic the kidney um, only survived a couple weeks. Oh. If you're going to have you know, something that you've got to have a surgery for, you definitely want it to last a Right,
0: last few right. Weeks. So, well, they have transplant uh, of the heart. you know, they have transplants. But I, I I keep seeing things on TV on these documentaries that they're really trying to do these 3D things. So, what do you think in the next 10 years we'll have something like that?
1: Uh, at least a decade, probably more. You know, mm-hmm. it, it takes a long time, unfortunately, to get things. Uh, through our process, and, and, you know, that's because we want to make sure it works and make sure it's it's safe because, you know, sometimes we roll things out too soon and we end up... you know causing more harm than good, yeah,
0: yeah. so let's talk a little bit about another uh, you know thing that was a fascinating part of your life, you know, being a woman of color and being a doctor. Um, what uh, what kind of takeaway um, did you have becoming a doctor and a woman of color?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that um, goes back to even before. Um, I was in high school deciding to become a doctor. Um, I I didn't see any examples, anybody that looked like me. And I think that's what's so important um, about uh, just all of my um, education. From the moment they labeled me as gifted and talented in the fifth grade and I was separated off from, you know, know, the general group, I was always the, the only little black girl in the class and that that's a lonely place to be, right, right? And you often feel like you don't fit in, that you don't belong, and you um, you doubt yourself. And then um, as a, as I advance through, like at the college level and medical school level, um, and then sometimes people tell you the only reason why you're here is you know like some kind of affirmative action thing. Oh God! It ah. took me a really long time to get to the place where I could you know be. You know, strong in myself, and say, you know what? I took the same standardized test that you did. To- right, with-
0: right, right, right. So, yeah. Well, they even think that about women, let alone color, right? I remember oh, right. when um, I, my first husband, I put him through medical school at University of Virginia. And there was only in his class, there was so few women, you know, and I loved them. You know, I was so excited for them, you know, and same thing kind of in my profession, becoming a lawyer. There weren't that many lawyers at that time, either women in medical, in law school or medical school. Now, thank God it's changed. But, yeah, being a woman and a woman of color, then, you know, you got those, those two things that are, that are challenging.
1: Yeah, of course. And, and even though we, there are lots of women and a lot more people of color in medicine, there's still the issues of um, people um, advancing along, and particularly in the, you know, academia, people um, being promoted to higher levels. It, it still um, is much more predominated by white men, and yes. not so much represented by women or um, people of color.
0: Right, right. So, yeah, the yeah. the trailblazers out there—you and me and all these other people—but yeah, it's a wonderful work that you're doing.
1: People, yeah, I'm benefiting from a lot of people that came before me. So, but uh, hopefully, I can say and do something positive for those who are coming behind me.
0: Yeah. So, um, what kinds of things are you doing to help even out the playing field between people of all races, and you know, and the getting a, a, a kidneys kidneys as well? Like I remember. Um, they really poo-pooed my mother because she was older. She was in her late 70s. Even older, getting a transplant, that was another thing besides being people of color, right? So what about that in terms of getting transplants? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, the thing about um, kidney transplant is there just simply aren't enough organs to go around. Right. There are um, 100,000 people at least every year on the waiting list and only about seventeen, eighteen thousand 18,000 kidney transplants are done in the whole country every year. Right. It means that 13 people die every day waiting for a kidney transplant. Oh,
0: my so God. With,
1: um, with the organs being so scarce, um, they really want to make sure that the people who get them are going to, one, take the best care of them, and two, can... Um, benefit the longest from it. Right. So that's where the age thing...
0: Right, right. I get it. Uh, That's why she was on dialysis. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. You don't want to give a kidney that has like 50 years of life on it to somebody who probably won't... Live, but five to ten years.
0: Right. I mean, that makes so, sense. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know it's some it's some tough um, realities, and, and but at the same time, when when people are older and they've got lots of things going on, it is a major surgery. So you've got to be able to get through that right. surgery.
0: Right. Right.
1: Right. issues. So you
0: want somebody who's going to be able to withstand that surgery, so that that you won't waste that kidney. Yeah. That, that makes sense That's to me. Yeah. That. Yeah. But how about people of color?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the problem with, um, you know, the system in, term, in terms of um, deciding about who is the best candidate, unfortunately, um, you know, we have a long history of uh, strife around race in this country, and, it, you know, we've seen the same thing with dialysis. When dialysis first um, was invented, it was a, a scarce thing. Not everybody right. had it, and it was um, really expensive. And they put together this um committee that ended up being nicknamed the God Committee because they would decide who would basically um get a live or die. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Exactly. And those those early um the early um you know, few hundred people, they were mostly um younger white men. Um, and so it wasn't until the, um, the, the federal government uh, with Medicare created the in stage renal disease program that paid, um, for dialysis, and really that's the only example of like socialized medicine um, It's the only specific disease that the government um takes um pays for the care of right and um and so now we're at this point where it's you know almost like you know it's gone the other way where you know uh, as many people develop kidney failure, we have plenty of dialysis cares for them, and it's you know become this kind of big business thing that um is uh worked in some ways.
0: Yeah. Well, we are just out of time. I want to remind my audience that you wrote this beautiful book about your story, Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers, A Kidney Doctor's Search for the Perfect Match by Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, MD. And um, I just want to tell you, thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing uh, for patience and for your that you, I hope your husband. I know your husband really appreciates you, <laughs> and uh, and keep us uh, in touch with us so that we can talk about your next book. Okay.
1: No All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure talking with you, and that that half hour really flew by.
0: It. I told you it would really fly. <laughs> okay. Very good. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the neck. I'm I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. And visit our website at at KUCI.org or go to conflicthealing.com. Thanks.
1: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. You gotta kind of fight
0: both night and day, doesn't matter what some people may say, don't be the lunch, cry, be the lion's roar, cause love is worth fighting for, I know, yeah, love is worth fighting
1: for, love is worth fighting for.